Morning, saints. Morning, sinners. Oh, I'm expecting a huge altar call when I'm done. I'll have you know that. I want you to welcome with me our latest addition to Canada. He doesn't know I'm doing this, but he needs to know that he has been welcomed here. All the way from Syria is our new friend, Atella. Welcome, Atella. Can you stand and everybody can see you? Welcome to Canada. And we uh, have got him comfortably nestling in, and uh, we are still in need of some furniture. And Beatrice and Carl are, um, uh, and Mike Schrader and, and a few others, Steve Beal, are, are looking after making sure that Atella can settle in. And we just still need some furniture. And if you have some items that you're willing to donate, can you please connect with uh, Beatrice and Carl today? Uh, I think a kitchen suite, right? A small table and chairs. Anything else, Beatrice? Yeah, so if you have some stuff lying around that you would love to donate, please connect with Carl and Beatrice, and that would be great. Also, this is our last week for Evan and Bonnie. Where are you guys? I know you're here. Where are they? They're upstairs. Oh, they're probably with Sol... Uh, they're saying by the great fives. Okay, well, there are missionaries here, and uh, they're taking off, and this is their last Sunday. So it's good. It's good. It's all good. Let's pray. God, we want you to be present as you always are and to be aware of you in new ways. And my prayer is that you would speak to us and that you would challenge us. Uh, that you would show us things this morning that need your healing touch. And that as we leave this place, we know that you're always in this process of restoring us. And so may we be focused without distraction as you speak into our souls. And my prayer is that you would hear, we would hear your voice. Make these passages clear, and may we see our story in this story, and in these ideas, may we find our healing and hope, and know that you are with us like you always are. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're a guest here, we welcome you. Uh, we usually take the book of the Bible and just walk through it. That's, that's how we are for the most part. Um, I'm really excited for Bad Friday. <laughs> Yay, Jesus died. Um, but uh, if you are not away on uh, spring break vacation, please join us. And uh, of course, Easter Sunday, you, you need to bring somebody and uh, get the word out in that way. I, I'm, I want you to open your Bible. I want you to open your, uh, your iPad, your iPhone, open your eyelids for some of you and join with me into Matthew uh, chapter 14, we're looking at verses 1 to 12, and uh, even uh, 13, and you can follow along with me if you have it in front of you, but it also will be on the wall. Because when I first realized, as you walk through the book of the Bible, and you, you start looking at different passages, and you open it up to certain passages, my first thought when I opened this up was, how am I going to preach this? How do you preach this? this you know, it, it's the only story in the books of Matthew and Mark that actually doesn't directly concern Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It's a unique passage of Scripture, not to mention the fact that it's a weird story in of itself. And it starts like this. It goes, um, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. 
That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. You just open it up and goes like, this, what is going on here? And so contextually, as we read this passage, it's actually a bit of a flashback. Earlier in Matthew chapter 11, when we walked through this, it was recorded that John was already in prison. John the Baptist was arrested. He's already thrown in prison. And now we jump to this chapter and we're able to actually fill in the blanks. But let me first, so that we can understand what's going on here in this passage, let me create for you or teach you this morning who this Herod is. It's what I call the Herodian Mafia or the Herod Mafia. This Herod family looms large in the New Testament. And these people existed and these events actually occurred in history. It's not some fabrication. It's not any myth. And first of all, it all starts with this guy called Herod the Great. Now, he had at least nine wives, and too bad they didn't have nine lives, because he thought of nothing of killing off his, his uh, wives or his children if they got in the way of his own plans. This guy was nasty. He was a maniacal king. He, he was a puppet of Rome who ruled all of Judea and Jerusalem at the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great is the one who ordered the murder of the two two-year-old boys in Bethlehem hoping to kill that child who was to be born king of the Jews. You tracking with me? Okay. And he died a couple of years after that. Jesus didn't, interesting enough. But once he died, his kingdom then was divided amongst three of his four sons. So his top three sons were Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas. Now this is important because they play a role in what we're going to. So now Herod the Great is dead. Um, he divides his territory amongst these guys into three sections. Uh, Herod Archelaus had Judea and Samaria. Then Herod Philip had the northern territory. And then there was Herod Antipas, who, uh, who is the Herod of the story that we're looking at this morning. And uh, his territory was Galilee and Judea. Now, the title was Herod the Tetrarch that we read in the scripture, which means he's the ruler of the fourth part of the kingdom. So it's just a title. Um, and this guy, this, this Herod Antipas, and I'll just call him Antipas from now on, he was known for living in luxury. He was known for his materialism. Uh, when you go through the Gospels, you see in Luke, Jesus calls him out. He calls him a fox because uh, Herod had, uh, Antipas had a, a reputation for being crafty and cruel. It goes on in, in Mark 8, Jesus is warned, warns people of the dangers of what he calls the leaven of Herod. Uh, because Herod was involved in a great deal of lying and political wheeling. So this guy is not a good guy. His dad wasn't good. He's not good. Add to that, he's got this hunger for materialism, this, this fleshly appetite. He was known as a drunkard. He's known as somebody who's very depraved. And he's ruling this area. He has a son later on. His son is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa, as we go through history, we see he's the one who imprisons the Apostle Peter and kills the Apostle James. You with me? Uh, Herod Agrippa's son, Agrippa II, tries to, uh, he's the one who tried the Apostle Paul. And so basically what you have is you have the mafia family of the first century under the title Gesundheit. Uh, the title's not Gesundheit, the title is Herod. Are you with me? So back to our story. We know that the work of Jesus is being reported to Herod. 
uh, uh, Herod Antipas. And, and now this guy's troubled because as we read in the scripture, maybe he's thinking that Jesus is not Jesus, but Jesus is actually John the Baptist coming back from the dead. So what's he troubled about? Well, let's go back to the scripture and continue to read. It says, now Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison because of Herodias. Again, that's her name. That's, that's his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, which means Antipas, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So what we see is a complicated backstory of sin leading to sin, leading to more sin, and eventually death. And you know things are starting to get intense in a show when the main characters start getting imprisoned and executed. So while Jesus is at work and he's walking around and he's saving and he's healing and he's redeeming his people, the daily news on the broadcast is filled with scandal and what's going on in the government. Scandal, debauchery, moral decline, and the death of a righteous man, uh, all based on the height of leadership. So Jesus is doing his thing, but the politics is doing a whole nother, other thing. So who are all these people that are mentioned in this passage? Because we actually know a lot about the players in history. Herod Antipas was full brothers with the other Herod, Archelaus. But Herod, Antipas, and Archelaus are half-brothers with Philip. You tracking with me? Because Herod the Great had so many wives. It's just like kids are popping out all over the place. Now, Antipas' mother was a Samaritan. And so that's why he was given the area of Galilee and Judea. That was because that was the familial connection. And so he now marries the daughter of a neighboring king. Not that it really matters, but a Nabataean king. So he's got his little area. There's another little kingdom here. He marries that guy's daughter. And soon there are severe problems. So Philip who's a brother from another mother, right? You got it. He's no saint either because he ended up marrying his niece, okay, you, you're tracking with me now, from another side of the family. Her name is Herodias, okay? Now, her father, Philip's brother, his name was uh, Aristobulus. Now, we don't see this name up. Why? Because he's executed by his father, Herod the Great, for treason. So there were four boys. This guy's cut out of there, has this daughter, Herodias, and Herodias marries her uncle, Philip. You tracking with me here? And they have a daughter. And the daughter's name is Salome. Now, what happens historically is Antipas goes visits Philip and Herodias. Now, they lived in Rome. They tried to live as regular citizens, um, tried. But Antipas goes visits Philip and has an affair with his bro's wife, Herodias. Herodias then divorces Philip, and Antipas divorces his wife. Remember, who is the daughter of a king, right? And uh, these two marry each other. It's like love wins, right? That's just how it goes. And so what you see now behind the scenes of what's going on in Scripture, but what's going on politically behind the scenes is that there's this major political and social scandal. Like this is crazy stuff that's going on. And there's a few problems, and everybody's talking about it, but there are more problems because now Philip's really upset, 
And when Antipas leaves his wife, her dad, that king of that region, is naturally upset. And what does he do? He wants to protect his daughter's honor. So he starts a war. That's what we do, right? So he starts a war. And Antipas actually loses some land in this war. And now Rome, because he's a subject of Rome, is not pleased. And Antipas already has this questionable reputation. His honor is soiled. Um, He's trying to govern a region that includes ethnic Nabataeans, which, you know, which is part of this kingdom. And they're divided in their loyalties. And now what we find is Herod Antipas is afraid. Well, Jerry, where do you get that? Well, here's the beauty of it. Scripture is backed up by history. And so there's this G- uh, Jewish theologian and historian by the name of Josephus. And he, he writes what's going on. First century, he's writing what's going on. And uh, he writes about this very event. He said that some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. He goes on to add, he says, for Herod had killed this good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, piety towards God. So Josephus supports the scripture's claim that John the Baptist was popular. He continues and he writes on, he says, Now many people came in the crowds to him, for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who feared that great influence John had over the masses, might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything that he advised. In other words, John was controlling the masses of people. But what's he doing? He's telling them to repent. He's telling them to get to know God, but Herod's all uptight. And so Herod thought it was best to put him to death. And the Jews now thought that the destruction of Herod's army was actually a punishment sent by God on Herod as a mark of God's displeasure upon him. That is what the secular historians, if I can put it that way, of the time saw what was happening in society. It's fascinating when we start looking into scripture and start asking the hard questions. And so in this messy political situation that John, with John the Baptist, this great preacher, this great prophet who comes before Jesus, he comes on the scene, he begins to preach. And when Jesus shows up, we find him preaching in Matthew 3. Jesus is preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? He's healing people. He's restoring people. But John is a whole lot different. John's still calling people to repent. He's kind of a little crazy. He's out in the middle the desert he's putting people underwater and and he's telling them to get their act together but he now starts getting in trouble why because he begins to meddle socially and morally in the life of a ruler of the king John is an evangelist. He acts as a prophet. He's a fearless champion of the will of God to all who are going to listen. If you're going to listen to them, he's, he's got your attention. He's gaining all this popularity amongst the general population. He's almost an attraction where you can sell tickets to go see this guy preach or baptize you. He's one who uh, announced that Jesus was coming, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, and he never held back his word. And you study the life of John the Baptist, and you see that this is a who lived a life of integrity. He was called a righteous man. And while the Herod crime family consistently acted, though there was no law or order that was beyond themselves, John starts going on. John knows that there is a law and an authority that is over all and that is greater than any king. He knows that no one is above the law of God. And it doesn't matter if you're the lowest peasant or the highest authority in the land. 
God's law applies to all. And that's what John is preaching. And so when God says through John, don't mess around with your brother's wife, he means it. And John's going to preach the truth of God's word and God's commands and what our response is, regardless of how powerful or how influential the person is, he was going to go out there and say it. And John knew that his preaching would upset Herod, but he still preached. He basically was saying, hey, Herod, I got a couple of verses for you. You know, uh, when I say repent that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it means that you don't get to have your brother's wife because she's your brother's. Hey, king, by the way, Leviticus 18, 16 says you shouldn't uncover your nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. And in case you forgot Leviticus 20, king, it says that if a man takes his brother's wife, it's impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. In other words, John did not hold back by calling Herod and Herodias out. And it's interesting. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. There are numerous comments regarding John in this passage of scripture throughout uh, um, my research. Theologian and historian Jerome, uh, he, he said that John preferred to be the endangered by the king rather than to be for the sake of flattery unmindful of the commands of God. John Calvin said, others attacked and cursed Herod behind his back. John alone bluntly rebuked him to his face in an effort to bring him to repentance. I like that. Matthew Henry said, faithful reproofs, if they do not profit, usually provoke. Or better yet, truth produces hatred. That's pretty powerful words. So John's pushing Herod's buttons and he gets him arrested. Or oh, sorry, and that gets him arrested. We read of this in, in, in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6, it says, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put into prison. What is this guy doing that he needs to be arrested? What is this guy doing that he needs to be tied up? He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias now nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Just a sweet dear lady. Notice what it says, though, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and holy. So Herod knows that John's righteous and holy. And so when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. It's almost like an entertainment show. And so now there's a change in the story. So let's go back to our text, Matthew 14, verse 6. It's Herod's birthday. The daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. This is mom talking to her daughter. Mom, I can get anything. Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king is distressed, but because of the oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And John was beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and they took his body, they buried it. They went and they told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Jesus went and grieved. 
This is one twisted story. How do you preach a twisted story? And there are a number of things here I think we need to talk about. I think first is the one that stands out to me is that the woman in this story is very unique, believe it or not. See, no woman is reported to deny Jesus in the Gospels at all. When you read all four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no woman denies Jesus at all in the Gospels. Um, as a matter of fact, in the Gospels, it's women, not men, who wait at the crucifixion. It's women who watch the burial. It's women who visit on Easter. This is the closest women get to being bad in the Gospels. These are girls gone bad. This is what this is here. So Herodias' hate and love of pleasure is so twisted, she pressures her own daughter to order a murder and ask that a head is grotesquely placed on a platter, the head of another human being, and it's a clear picture of immorality and sensuality gone bad. Interesting. But there's other issues going on here as well. Can I talk about dancing? Sure, sure. Because I don't know about you, but... uh, you know, a few of us come from either Mennonite or Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, and maybe you were taught, you know, that dancing was sinful and we shouldn't participate. Why? Because it leads to sex, and not to mention that you shouldn't have sex either because that could lead to dancing. And so we have this conflict that, you know, we're there. And, and I kid you not, I actually heard dancing leads to sex. You don't dance. And a lot of times they would point out this passage in Scripture to, you know, full, uh, you know support the argument. Some of you guys are going, you've got to be kidding. What kind of cult is this a part of? No, it's, it's serious. And as a matter of fact, it goes way back. You know, it's, it's interesting. Dancing was vogue during the first century Jewish, Jewish life. This is my ancient Israel. It was a sign of joy. When people danced, it was joy. It was, it was usually practiced for the entertainment of others. It was, but it was almost exclusively done by men in some context. But when people danced, when the sexes danced, men danced with men and women danced a woman. They danced apart. Are you tracking with me? Um, uh, so there were weddings and many other festivals where dancing is the norm. And some commentators suggest that dancing of men with women seemed to actually not even been known during this time. So when dancing took place, the ladies were over there and the guys were over there and that's what was happening. Now in the Bible, in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, a dance is, is referred to in various different contexts as, as an important ritualized activity. And it, again, it's an expression of joy. It's an expression of celebration. But none of these references, however, contain descriptions of how the dancers actually moved. In other words, we don't find anything, you know, well, do this and then spin around. We don't see anything like that, right? So it's dancing is mentioned in connection a lot with the celebrations and the feasts and military victories, the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and other festivals, uh, specifically in the Old Testament. And so the Bible con- contains many um, Hebrew verb roots employed to describe dancing. Four of those alone are used in the description of bringing the ark in, the celebration of what was going on, which inspired King David and his subjects to do what? They danced. They danced before the Lord. And David not only danced in the ordinary sense of the word dance, but 
he also, the descriptors of how to dance were found in the Hebrew words. So he rotated with all his might. So he rotated, he jumped. Um, uh, a slightly different version appears in Chronicles mentioning that he skipped other root verbs for dancing. The, 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 he was leaping and jumping, jumping with both feet, going around, skipping, even limp, which I found very interesting. That's a dance. I, I guess you didn't know that, but... And, and obviously moving in a circle. So the scriptures talk about how dancing is. And so dancing was huge in the Old Testament. We presume it carries over in the context of our passage today. Why? Because it was ancient Israel. But it also carried over into the Middle Ages and into Europe. So dancing was pleasurable, a pleasurable end in itself. In the medieval ghettos of France, Germany, and Poland, where the, the living quarters were very crowded, almost every Jewish community had a wedding house. You know what it was called? A tan's house. A tan's house. A dance house. It was a wedding house. And there, it was used for festive occasions. During the Renaissance, the Jews danced for recreation, danced for entertainment. It was something that was in their culture. It still is today. So as far as I can tell from my research, dance was not a part of worship in the early church. Isn't that interesting? Greek and Jewish culture featured dancing at weddings, special occasions, feasts and such, but dancing was spontaneous, it was celebratory, it wasn't necessarily liturgical. Now, in the early centuries of the church, dancing became associated with immorality. In the early centuries, the early church fathers, they basically start painting this bleak view of dancing, but didn't prevent sacred dance, interesting enough. So Clement of Alexandria, he wrote in 195, he interpreted, and I love this, I want you to see this, he interpreted the Old, scripture, Old Testament scriptures in a way that just boggles my mind. If you can get up on the next slide, he says this. Praise, uh, so he's looking at the psalm that says, praise with the timbrel and the dance, and this is his comment. He says, this refers to the church meditating on the resurrection of the dead and the resounding skin. What are you talking about? But this is how guys would start to justify a certain position that they hold. Commodius, he's writing about 240. Uh, he associates dancing with worldliness. You're rejecting the law when you wish to please the world. You dance in your houses instead of psalms. You sing love songs. Cyprian, he writes a decade later. He, he makes, interesting enough, here he makes a distinction between godly and ungodly dance. So the fact that David led the dances in the presence of God is no sanctification for Christians to occupy seats in the public theater. In other words, dancing in public theater was, was, was a bit of an issue. So you would go, you'd watch people dancing, kind of like the ballet. For David did not twist his limbs about in obscene movements. I don't know, because when you look at the Hebrew verbs, David was doing some crazy stuff. You know, I don't know what he was doing, but he was doing some crazy stuff. And he goes on, he says, he did not depict his dancing the story of the Grecian lust. So... Well, I don't know, dude, you weren't there. In the days of the early Catholic Church, the priests were forbidden to attend any type of dances, and if they did, they would actually be de, de, deflocked or debarred or whatever, or kicked out of the priesthood. So the Catholic Church was really tight on that. Chrysostom, he said that where dancing is, the evil one is as well. For neither did God give us feet for this end. Now think about what was happening throughout the Old Testament. But that we may walk orderly, not that we may behave ourselves unseemingly, not that we may jump like camels, or even they too are disagreeable when dancing much more women. Sorry, ladies. 
But we may join the choir of angels. So singing over dancing. We don't dance. We're to walk. We're not to dance. John Calvin says, interesting, he says, not that it's wrong itself to give a good party, but such is the propensity of the human mind and wantonness that when the reins are loosed, man easily go astray. Oh, let the music play. <laughs> Martin Luther shows up. Now, I know I'm, I've been raved about Martin Luther the last couple of weeks in it, but the guy is a bit of a scumbag. When you actually read some of the stuff that he's print, printed, says some of the beliefs that he held, some very racist beliefs. Um, but God, God used this guy to, to change where the church was going. And he shows up on the scene, and, and he argues that the dance was uh, not to blame uh, for the fact that people sinned while dancing. In fact, he argued that people sin at the table. People sin in church is part of his argument. And eating and drinking is not forbidden because some people turn into pigs, right? So he goes on, he says this, Man can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit wine and abolish women? The sun, the moon, and the stars have been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? And so in Luther's view, if people were, were decent and moderate in their conduct, they could not dance away their faith. Back to our story. How is that for stuff to feed you on this morning? It's Herod's birthday. They're singing, it's my party. And, and this party that is described is actually more of a Greek thing than it is a Jewish thing. And it would have re resembled a high-class frat party with a few differences. One of that is that the rooms would have been separate for the men and the women. And the idea of this party is that the guys would be in one room and they would be getting drunk in their room and the dancers would come in and entertain them. Now, these were usually hired professionals. You tracking with me? Uh, but, they, but for some reason, Herod's stepdaughter steps in. And Herod's stepdaughter now comes in and starts dancing. And the dance in this story is very unusual. It's not a typical dance. It's a very unusual dance. And it's being performed not only by a woman, but it's being performed by the king's daughter. And we don't know specifically if what that dance was. Maybe there was a pole included. We're not sure. Maybe she had a whole lot of duck, shaped, uh, duck lips on her Instagram. We're not sure. But what we are sure of is that this woman is anywhere between the ages of 12 and 15. And that this pleased Herod, can you say pedophile? Here is a royal princess acting as a dancing girl. And because she danced in front of men, it's considered suggestive and immoral. Are you tracking with me? So this, this isn't a dance. This is totally gone outside the realms of morality, even for their own time. For a royal princess to dance in public was an amazing thing. Herodias had no problem demeaning her daughter if she can get revenge on the man that called her own sin out. And so in Herod's drunken, lustful intoxication, in front of everybody, he speaks out like most drunks do so that everybody can hear him. I'll drink to that. And he says to everybody who can hear, a vow, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Anything you want. Now, again, what he's doing is, is totally out of character, out of line. And so Rome wouldn't approve of this at all because this guy is now off the charts. 
So this young girl, we know her as Salome, she leaves, she goes to her mother's room and she consults her mother and she says, I can have anything. I can have anything I want. What should I ask for? This is a young teenage daughter asking her mother, what can I ask for? And her mother doesn't hesitate how to take advantage of the opportunity and Herodias, more than anything, uh, um, she doesn't want Herod to buy or give her anything. What she wants and done is that she wants her source of shame and judgment for her sin gone. She wants to get rid of that guy, John, who puts the blame on her. She puts the blame on John. She wants him dead. She says to her daughter, bring John's head on a plate and do it now. Why? Because then it's the fastest way. The guy's drunk. He's drunk. He doesn't have a time and opportunity to sober up, to seek wise counsel, to consider how people would react with his decision. She wanted a quick, active decision. And the gospel writers, when you look at this, they see that John was killed because he was a man who told the truth. When you take a look at it, he was killed because he literally stood up for the sanctity of marriage. And he called people out when they were wrong. And it's a tragic story. John the Baptist is murdered by Herod. In cold blood. Jesus said John was one of the greatest men born of natural means, and yet he was snuffed out before his time. But worse than murdering a good man is murdering your own conscience when you think about it. And that's exactly what Herod did. And and so what is our takeaway from this morning? And I can tell you that the first two verses that Herod is recounting from the past, when we look in verse 14, that, you know, how he killed John. And now he has this guilty conscience. And every person, every one of us is born with a conscience, but conscience is hard to define or explain. One little boy, he did define conscience as this. Your conscience is what makes you tell your mom what happened before your sister does. I love that. You know, so what's the difference between the word conscious and conscious? You know, uh, one defined it as conscious is, is when you're aware of something and conscience is when you wish you weren't. Doesn't that make sense? So this conscience is that red warning light that's in our soul. It's, it's a moral beeper that goes off when, when you've done wrong. And we've all been there. We've all been there. You know when you've done something wrong, Right? So our conscience is like this square peg inside our heart that turns when we do something wrong. And as it turns, those sharp edges give you this sensation, I better stop, this is not comfortable. But if you ignore that warning over time, the edges wear off and it can freely turn without you feeling anything anymore. And whether we like it or not, pain is our friend. And, and, and it lets us know that we need to be careful in numerous different ways or we're going to do greater damage to ourselves. The very same thing happens to our own conscience. And we're okay when God's word talks about sin in ways that we aren't currently engaged with. Track with me here for a second. We're okay when the Bible calls out drunkenness, especially if maybe if you don't even drink. In our culture, we, we don't have an issue with overeating, right? We call it a buffet. The Bible calls it gluttony, but I'm just throwing it out there. You know, we're okay with overeating until somebody calls into question your weight. Amen or ouch? I'm not sure, right? We're okay with our stuff. We're okay with our sin until it applies directly to us and we're called out on it. 
We hate it when God's word, when, when we're reading the scripture and God's word calls out our sin. And what would we do? What does society do? Well, we say things, well, I don't like that verse. Well, you know, that's judgmental. Or, you know what, the Bible is archaic. It don't, no longer applies. And we say anything and justify anything to actually avoid dealing with the stuff that God's trying to get our attention on. And this is true with Herodias. This is true with Herod. And I need to say that we are just like Herod and Herodias because you and I do not want to hear when we're in sin. So what are the consequences of John's preaching? John's arrested, he's bound, he's in prison. It's as if the government made a post, your public ministry in this land is going to end because of what you're saying about God, his word. It's in conflict with the practices of the highest authority in this land, and so we will use the power of the state to silence you. Freedom of speech. You know, John, it's freedom of speech. John, until, you know, you say something that people don't like or until it paints us in a less favorable light. And then what do we do? We shut people down. It's interesting. You do research on conscience, and it says that actually many Christians have a dull conscience. Romans 2.15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them and at other times, even defend them. Interesting, but they don't respond. My, my caution to you this morning is don't ignore your conscience. Or you can destroy your conscience. You know, the world says, let your conscience be your guide, right? Hey, Pinocchio. That's not always a good idea. You can't always do that. This is a dumb thing that smart Christians believe. You can't always do that because conscience doesn't set the standard of right or wrong. Are you tracking with me? It only applies to the standards that you have been taught. So conscience then in our lives is like a thermostat. It, it can be set to operate at many different levels. And from this passage, we learn that Herod had a troubled conscience. Why? Because of the message of God and because of the message of the man of God. Herod felt guilty not only for killing John, but for what John had said to him, because he knew it was true. Herod knew that he was guilty of gross immorality and that he had coveted not only just his neighbor's wife, but his brother's wife, and he committed adultery. And John doesn't trim his message even for a king. He calls him out. Herod's conscience is very much alive, but not for long, because his wife is leading him in the opposite direction of his conscience. You know, and I believe that you and I also have differing influences in our lives as well. You know, which way are you going? What kind of decisions are you making every day at work, at school, at home? Because there's only two choices on the shelf. Are we pleasing God or are we pleasing ourselves? And so not only was Herod's conscience troubled, this guy was also trapped. When you think about it. Somebody once said that sin is like a spider that, that weaves a web of guilt, one strand at a time. And then again, oh, but what a tangled web we weave. You know, Herod was a man of guilty conscience. He, he was still doing wrong. Now he steps into the trap. 
You know, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the lies, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So what we see is that he is, he is forced to make a decision. His passions led to pride. He is trapped by his own pride. He's worried about a woman's tantrum more than he is about a moral law. He's more worried of the criticism of the other people than he is about his own conscience. So he makes this drunken vow, and now he has to keep his promises, and he sentenced an innocent man to death. Herod fears the people. Herod fears John. Herod fears his wife. Herod fears his guests. He fears Rome. He fears his reputation, but he doesn't fear God. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. And this is so true. And yet today, we as Christians, we we do foolish things because we're afraid what our friends will think if we don't go along with them, right? We're afraid of what our bosses or employers are going to think or our schoolmates are going to think. We're afraid what our neighbors are going to think. We're afraid of what our family is going to think. We just don't go along with them. And for Herod, there's no turning back now. His conscience is trapped. He, he now has what we would call a tormented conscience. Because he hears about Jesus, and it comes back to the beginning of our story, and, and he wonders who Jesus is, because the news is out about Jesus, and he's, he's sure it's John resurrected you know, uh, from the dead, coming back for vengeance. Now, it's interesting that the family of Herod supported the Sadducee um, aspect of the religious community in uh, in Israel at the time, whether they were Sadducees themselves, we're not sure whether they identified. It's like, you know, they supported the Catholics. They, they identified with a religious sect. That's all I'm saying. Interesting that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But here, Herod says, well, this is John the Baptist coming back from the dead. And so it's interesting, maybe in desperate times, how it can actually melt bad theology, if I can put it that way. You know, we can make bold statements about what we believe or what we don't believe, but when, when the bottom uh, hits, the, the truth comes to the service. You know, you've heard the expression, there's no atheists in foxholes. Many want a religion that's good enough to live by, but when we're facing death, you realize you need a belief that's good enough to die by. And so here we have this, this Herod, this lusting man, or I should say a lusting man can realize you know, how wrong he's been when it starts affecting his marriage, but then hopefully it's not too late. Well, let me put it this way. Some parents let their kids watch just about anything and do anything on, on the net and whatever, or see anything on TV or, uh, or movies, and they themselves, the same thing, until their kids are, are walking around and the parents see that their kids are having some serious issues. And then we think we can justify our lenience in disciplining our kids or in any area of our lives until suddenly we start seeing consequences of our actions. Sometimes we operate as if we have no inner conscience. Somebody once said, emergencies affect the clarity of our thinking. Isn't that true? We need to enjoy living with the benefits of a clear conscience by listening to its warnings early so you don't have to hit rock bottom to come to your senses. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to constantly be speaking into our lives, to, to revealing to us what is right, what is wrong, what, the directions we should be going and, and the ears we should be listening to. And you can destroy your conscience, according to Scripture. You can defile and sear it to the point that you no longer hear it. And you no longer hear the voice of God. That should trouble us. 
the story of Herod is not quite over. Because just before Jesus is crucified, he, remember he appears before Herod? We read this in Luke 23. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Okay, so he's heard about him, he now sees him. It's just before Jesus is to be crucified. Remember, he bounces back between Herod and Pilate. And it says, because for a long time, Herod had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. In other words, there's no sincerity. There's, it's just a morbid curiosity. He's saying, Jesus, do a trick for me. Do a trick. Can you do a trick for me? This guy's a piece of work. And the work that Jesus has been doing up to Matthew chapter 14 is undeniable. He's healing people. He's performing miracles. He's teaching. Uh, people are seeing this. They're talking about it all over the region of Galilee, even in the court of the highest government authority in the region. You know, everyone has their theories about who Jesus is. Some people are saying, well, he's Elijah who's to come and prepare the way for the Savior. Some say he's a prophet from God. Some say he's a teacher. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, remember they call him a servant of Satan. You know, he's an illegitimate child of a poor family. And then some say he is the son of God. Jesus turns and he asks his disciples, we read it in both Mark and Luke. He says, who do the people say that I am? And they, they give him a report of all the different ideas. But then Jesus asks them directly. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, you know what he replies? Bingo. You got it. And so here we are, the question of who Jesus is demands a response, a conviction, and then a conscience. And so this morning, we all have to do something with Jesus because he is a real person in history. You can speculate, you can guess, you can investigate, but at a certain point, you have to land on a position of who is Jesus. And we all have to choose something to believe about Jesus. That's just the way it is. And regardless of what we choose to believe, Jesus is who he is. He's not going to be defined by us, but actually we are defined by him. Meaning that we choose to say about Jesus, well, what we choose to say about Jesus says way more about ourselves than it does about Jesus. So in the face of all that Jesus is teaching, and in the face of all that Jesus is doing, the fact of the matter, when we look at Scripture, Herod is asking the same question. And ultimately, Herod ultimately landed with the saying that Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead, who now has miraculous powers. And I don't think this is from a careful analysis of evidence and counting Jesus personally or, you know, what made the most logical sense. I think what Herod was doing was a gut emotional response that shows where his heart was, that he had a guilty conscience for what he did to John the Baptist. And so Jesus represents to Herod the embodiment of his guilt and pending judgment. And Matthew then flashes back to the death of John the Baptist to show why Herod feels and acts the way he does. And he recognized in his heart that John was right, which meant that he was not. And Herod, Herod wants one foot in his sin and he wants one foot in his right, uh, in what is right. But eventually that dance had to end and you had to commit to one and you had to give up the other and Herod lost. You look at the story, and Herod and Herodias would rather blame John for speaking out against them than actually taking upon their own hearts and their own actions and to see what was really going on there. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we hate the fact that our sin actually has consequences, don't we? We like to pretend that it doesn't exist, and so we play games pretending these things don't exist, or if any preacher calls them out, or if any friend calls you out on something, well, it's, it's not you with the problem, it's they are the problem, because they're calling you out, and they're judgmental, and they shouldn't do it, but sometimes, don't we just do it for the love of people? At Herod's core, he fears people more than he fears God, and that is actually the heart of foolishness. And this is where we are more like Herod than when we actually care to admit. We give people power and we give them influence over us that really only God should have. And when we're governed by fear and shame and we act on it, we will sin and we will harm ourselves, but also we harm other people. When push came to shove and Herod actually had to choose between the two worlds he wanted to be in and, and one had to live and one had to die, at first he protected John. We read that, right? He engaged with John. He went and he listened to John, but he protected him until he could no longer play both sides. And he was more concerned with his honor, he was more concerned with his reputation than the life of another individual. And the fact of the matter is, Herod could have backed down, he could have humbled himself, but this is an all too familiar scene. He doesn't back down, he doesn't double down, but he follows through with the execution of a righteous person. Why? To show that, hey, I'm the man. You know, although we've been looking at Herod and Herodias and John the Baptist, what I need to point out is that this section in Matthew starts and ends with Jesus. John is martyred. And it's the point of, and it points to the death of Jesus. There's a whole lot of parallels that I didn't even go into today. And John's death doesn't solve anything. As good and righteous and just as he is, his death doesn't solve anything for anyone of any lasting eternal consequences. But when we read this story, we've got to imagine a, a young girl going to her mother and saying, Here, Mom, here's his head. Here's the head of John. He died for your sin. And you got to wonder, like, Herodias is obviously twisted, but maybe for a few moments she had some relief. Why? Because the guy who was calling her out is now dead. But her life still ended, and now she has come face to face with her creator. And we know clearly Herod still had shame and guilt, and in fact, it was added to by the death of John. John is killed to cover the shame of sin, but the sin remained. Jesus was killed, and his death removes our shame of sin. John's death leads to Herod to fear God's wrath more. Jesus' death means that we don't have to fear God's wrath because it was poured out on Jesus in our place. First Peter says he, bore, he himself bore our sins, his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live forever righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Herod feared the people's reaction if he killed a righteous man. Pilate feared that the people's reaction if he didn't kill a righteous man. Where Herod is concerned with this guilt, his honor, and, 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 and he was concerned with his guilt and his honor. And what does he do? He goes and he kills another person simply to protect it. When you look at Jesus, Jesus was concerned with our guilt, our shame. He gave up his honor. He was willingly killed to protect others. Killing John doesn't change anything in the scriptures, but killing Jesus changed everything. And we're moving up to Easter week. 
And some of the disciples of John realized that they have to go somewhere and they have to follow someone when, when everything had failed. And so who do they turn to? They turn to Jesus. And in grief and in pain and in senseless, senselessness, let me encourage you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, turn to Jesus. Hebrews says, therefore, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right end of the throne of God. So where, interesting enough, do you find yourself in this story? Maybe you're not as messed up or broken up as Herod, but maybe you're not as enraged as Herodias or as front and center as Salome. Maybe you're just at the party on the sidelines. Maybe you're one of those uh, associated, but you're not necessarily active do you realize that this party scene doesn't end in Scripture? Acts, the book of Acts tells us there's hope. And there's this obscure little verse in Acts chapter 13. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul. Here we have Manan. This guy was a part of Herod's inner circle. He may have even been present at the party that we've read about in Matthew 14. Manan would, would have been a member of Herod's court. He saw all that Herod could do, and sometime after that party, rather than serving and following Herod, he chose to serve and follow Jesus. And it, what did it do? It meant he had to leave Galilee. He went out of the comfort of Galilee, out of this, there, to the security, to Antioch, where he became one of the church's leaders of one of the greatest church-planting churches in history. And I read that, and I go, man, God can use anyone, anyone. And when, when, when he captures people, that, that he can use anyone now to preach the gospel and show that there's hope for, for all in Christ and lead the mission because he's got people to work with. So just when you think that everything is debauched in that Matthew 14, you see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's just amazing how God works. John's dead. His ministry is over. Herod's dead. His kingdom is no longer but because of the resurrection, Jesus is alive. His kingdom still grows. His ministry continues. And you know what? The story hasn't ended. So, what are you going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. I ask you to stand with me. And if you're able-bodied and you're able to do this, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I want you to find your solid foot, the one that is your dominant foot, and put all your weight on your dominant foot. And then I want you to lift your other foot like you're about to take a step. Are you with me? Now, some of you have the chairs in front of you. You can hold on to it. So that, that's the cheat, but you can do that. You, you, you tracking with me? And I'm going to pray, but I, I want you to stand like this and not put your foot down until the prayer tells you to do it. Are you with me? Let's pray. 
Gracious God, we are here ready to take that next step, and we know that it's risky, and we know that we are a little off balance, and we don't know where that, that's going to lead, but we trust you to put our foot down one step closer to you than when we came in here this morning. We ask that this morning we remember that we came here today to take one step closer, and if that much can happen today, then it's a good day. God, my prayer is that you will raise up people to follow you, that you will call people to follow you in ministry and in mission. Father, raise up people to be humble and caring and that they love you and that they can't do anything else because you are the great shepherd and we invite you to work in our lives. So break us to be useful and take us to do so much more than we could ever imagine. And may all this be to your glory, but also to our joy. Put a dance step, Lord, in our gate. Give us strength and wisdom and discernment and a love for your people. And Father, there are a lot of people here today who need more. Uh, there's a need for more uh, shepherds and shepherds carers in our world. We need people to plant churches. We need people to respond to ministry. And may we look in the mirror and ask ourselves, you know, do we love you and may we answer yes and move ahead and to do the work that you've laid out before us. So God, speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit guide our conscience. And may we be sensitive to your leading in all things. We pray in your name. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed extend his hands for the blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise, and here it is. May God, who created you from love and for love, may he heal and bless you, embracing you in the tenderness of mercy. May Jesus, who died for you, lift the burden of pain from your heart and take it to himself. May the Spirit comfort and strengthen your trust and your love. And soul sanctuary, may you find peace in the love of the people of God, forgiving its brokenness, understanding its frailty, trusting its fragility, so that you can once again find in the midst of people and a place that you can call home. Now go and live the church. See you next week.